Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Fiction Predictions, a new podcast about the greatest books, TV shows and movies from the past that predicted the world we live in today. I'm Sam Hasem. And I'm Nikolai Nikolov. Sam, are you ready to go down the rabbit hole with me on this one? Well, <laughs> are you going to, I feel like you're going to throw me in at the deep end. I'm, is, yeah. I feel like with your, with your philosophy background, I feel like I should be worried. Yeah, yeah, you should. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, don't worry, guys. It's not. It's not going to be too philosophical. Just, just a little bit. Okay. All right. So, Sam, do you know that prison in the Guardians of the Galaxy where all the main characters get caught up? If we're going to get out of here. We're going to need to get into that watchtower. And to do that, I'm going to. Yes, to- I watched Guardians of the Galaxy for the first time recently, and I do. I remember the prison. The one they sort of they they escape from, don't they? Or yeah, yeah. Do you do you remember how they escape? They basically they, they get holed up in the watchtower. So there's there's a prison and it's like a circular sort of building and there's like one central watchtower where Look, it's twenty feet up in the air and it's in the middle of the most heavily the guarded part of the prison. Inmates were being surveilled from. It's impossible to get up there without being seen. And the guardians of the galaxy sort of get into the tower and they use it as a ship and they sort of fly out of the of the prison that was a pretty good plan I, I do remember i do remember good well you may be surprised or you may not be surprised but that prison is actually based on an 18th century design and uh Ooh. that prison design pretty much predicted the rise of the surveillance society that we live in today oh that's a pretty that's a pretty bold claim yes so my story starts with jeremy bentham he's a British philosopher, pretty cool guy. Um, he's the father of utilitarianism, and uh, he came up with this prison design called the Panopticon. Just to quickly break in, remind me what utilitarianism is. In basic terms, it's the principle that the greatest happiness bestowed on the greatest number of people is actually the best measure to decide between what's right and what's wrong. Okay, got you, got you. And uh, Bentham was actually pretty progressive for his time. Um, he actually advocated for the freedom of expression, equal rights for women. Uh, he advocated to decriminalize homosexual acts. And funnily enough, he also advocated for um, animals' rights, which is which is nice. Yes. Sounds like a good guy. Yeah, so Bentham is a nice guy. And uh, Bentham was not really happy with the, the state of prisons in the 18th century. You can potentially imagine that it wasn't a really nice place to be in then. It isn't now, but it definitely wasn't then. And so 
he sort of designed this new uh, prison called the Panopticon. And it works in a very similar way to the prison in the Guardians of the Galaxy. You have a structure with a central tower, and in that tower there's a watch person. And the watch person, or watch people, um, can see every individual cell in that structure. But from that tower there's usually like a strong light or something, which means that the people from the cells cannot see who is in the tower. And the basic principle is just the fear that you're being watched makes you uh, sort of police yourself and makes you sort of behave better. And uh, the Panopticon's meaning comes from its name. Pan means all and Opticon means observed, so observing all. Okay. Bentham was a pretty smart guy. Yeah. Right. So Bentham came up with this idea when he was visiting his brother, Samuel, who was working in, in Russia in 1786, or then Russia, but uh, in today's sort of geography, it's actually Belarus. Anyway, so it's his brother who's actually a pretty good inventor himself who came up with the actual architecture of the building, of the Panopticon, but it was Bentham who sort of came up with the idea of how applying this to institutions, including the prison, but also the school and hospitals, can actually be beneficial both for the people in that institution, but also for the, you know, the people who manage that institution. And he basically argued that it will make those institutions more efficient because you need less people, less guards to, to take care of the prison. And just the structure itself would make the prisoners or inmates or whatever, according to the structure, they would just act better. Right? Because they were just disciplining themselves. Because they got this fear that someone might be looking at them. Yes. Okay. So Bentham started writing letters, which he published as a book uh, on the Panopticon in 1787. And the title, I think, is is perhaps the first clue of how, how well he anticipated where we are today. Mm. So the title of this book is called The Panopticon or the Inspection House, containing the idea of a new principle of construction applicable to any sort of establishment in which persons of any descriptions are kept under inspection. That's a pretty long title. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think things were different back then. Yeah, okay. So here's, a, here's one quote from those letters. All right, you ready? Yeah. Perhaps it is the most important point that the persons to be inspected should always feel themselves as if under inspection. Not only so, but the greater chance there is of a given person's being at a given time actually under inspection, the more strong will be the persuasion, the more intense, if I may say so, the feeling he has of his being so. Hmm, yeah, okay, that's already, yeah, it's already got a very, like, dystopian vibe, hasn't it? I can imagine that being used, you know how in sometimes in books they use, like, a quote at the beginning of a chapter or at the start of the book? I can, ima I can imagine that going in a kind of a, the front of a dystopian book or something. Yeah, basically what Bentham is saying in, the, in a rather convoluted way is that in this structure where the watch people can see all the inmates, but the inmates cannot see the watchmen, the, the people will start to discipline themselves. And what he writes is, Morals reformed, health preserved, industry invigorated, instruction diffused, public burdens lightened, all by a simple idea in architecture. Wow, he had some, he had some high hopes, didn't he, for this, uh, for this uh, tower? 
this Panopticon. Yeah, so it initially was designed as a prison, but in his heart of hearts, Bentham thought that it could be like it could work anywhere. It could work, you know, on workers. It could work on children. You could literally turn any building into a panopticon. All you had to do is have a central tower in the middle of that building, and each individual room or cell can be seen from that tower. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess, like in a school, like you perhaps need you'd need less teachers maybe to monitor a large number of children if you had a structure like this, and like in a workforce, I suppose this was his thinking. Exactly. Nobody's invisible. Okay. Unfortunately for Bentham, he, like he dedicated nearly 20 years of his life to making the Panopticon happen, um, and it never did. Wow. Yeah, that must be hard. Like being, he was obviously so, he was obviously really invested in in this thing, and it must have been tough for him to spend so much time on it and it never to never to happen. Since then, until today, basically, several prisons have been built to sort of mimic the Panopticon system. There's, I think the closest one is in Cuba, and there's like, you can Google it, there's, there's really nice pictures where you just see, you know, a, a central watchtower and you see sort of a, a, a like a periphery of, of cells. Um, but all of them fell short from the, the way that it worked as a whole. And the reason why is you, they, we never had the technology needed so that the, the, the inmates or whoever the surveillance was being applied upon would not be able to see the watchtower and likewise for the watchtower to be able to see each and every individual cell clearly. So the Panopticon was never really developed as an actual prison. It, it, was, it, it was left as a thought process or like an experiment. And then in the 70s, uh, another philosopher... I hold the bet that most of you... Who's this have really flamboyant, super influential Frenchman called Michel Foucault. Regularly visit a kind of master who takes their money from them in order to teach them how to take care of themselves. So Foucault comes around but and sort of brings back Bentham's Panopticon. Fortunately enough, I have forgotten, either in French or in English or in German, the name of those modern masters. In antiquity, they were called philosophers. And Foucault says that the society in which we all live is, is one where we conform to different behaviors according to where we are. So we act in one way when we're at work, we act another way where, you know, we're in a public place like in the street, and then we act another way we're in a school. The same counts for when, you know, where you're in a courthouse or when you're in a hospital, you follow different, it's different decorum, right? You, right. you, you, you feel like you know what you're supposed to do, your, what your manners and your gestures are according to the place or according to the institutions that you're in. Yeah, that makes sense. So Foucault writes this really, really influential book that makes philosophy really, really popular in 1975. And the book is called Discipline and Punish, and the subtitle is A Birth of a Prison. So while Bentham had this very practical idea of, of something, of a, of a prison or even a, a model that could be used elsewhere, Foucault's sort of taking it as a, as a metaphor for a, a, yeah, a larger... He just explodes it and applies it to society at large. Got you. Bentham had this idea of a panopticon in order to organize a good prison where people could be treated, uh, formed, uh, reformed, and so on. 
your body can be molded according to the function that it serves, right? So if you look at a soldier and the way that they like like live together in barracks, like everybody has the same haircut, everybody has the same sort of attire and they do the same things and they, they sort of act as a unit and it's sort of, it's designed to make everybody homogenous and to like eliminate individuality so they can function better as a, as a unit. What I mean by disciplinary system is much more kind of rationality. How can we govern other people, form other other people, obtain that? And that's part of disciplining society. That's part of the you know the, the panopticon idea of how society works. The best means, the most economical means, the most efficient means in order to obtain that, and that's the discipline, I think. That's it's quite ominous, isn't it? All this, like this, this panopticon business. Like I can, I, and again, like the more we talk about it, the more I'm thinking of various films and books. But it's yeah, it's quite an ominous idea. It like really is like playing upon like just fear, basically, as a as a control uh, as a control tool. And like yeah, it's quite a scary concept in a way. It's it's the premise of all dystopian novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah seeing for sure. and not being seen. Right. That's that's the the essence upon which like 1984 and other novels are built um it's it's the totalitarian society of the invisible power but the all-present domination right even in the smallest part of your private life do you you always feel like someone is watching you oh that's creepy when you say it like that and here's another quote makes me shudder slightly the panoptic mechanism arranges spatial unities that make it possible to see constantly and to recognize immediately in short it reverses the principle of the dungeon visibility is a trap Foucault again, really flamboyant, but it actually makes sense if you think about it. No, it does. Is I, I mean, I don't know whether you want me to, to to talk about this now or whether you'd want to cover like fictional examples later. But it's just really like all of these quotes are making me think so much about um, Oz, this TV show. I might have mentioned it to you before, um, but uh, I don't know if any, yeah, many, how many listeners will have seen seen Oz. But it was something I kind of I binge watched it back at university. Basically, it's set in an exper- in an experimental wing of a prison. It's called Emerald City. But in M City, the guards are with us 24 hours a day. There's no privacy. Everybody sees what everybody's doing. Eyes are everywhere. All of the cells that just have this see-through kind of glass or plastic on the front. Yeah. So yeah, it's this exactly like the visibility is a trap thing, like the the reverse of a dungeon. Like the the, the regular prison um, is still as normal. But, yeah, 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 but there's just this wing that, and there's this one particular guy who's driving it in the show and he really wants, he thinks it's going to be a really great way to, so he's almost like a Bentham figure um, and he thinks that this experimental wing is going to, yeah, is going to completely change no things, make, reduce violence, no all this fucking. kind of stuff. Follow the rules. Learn self-discipline. The way the prison is set up is definitely a kind of circular. All the, yeah, all the yeah. cells are see-through, and there's a there's a tower in the center. So it's very very reminiscent of this. Um, unfortunately, I mean, in the TV show, like the, people are dying in like every single episode. So it doesn't, yeah, I mean, you have yeah, to have the drama yeah. in a TV show, right? Yeah, 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 of course. Like that experimental wing would have been shut down in a heartbeat if it was yeah. real life. But it's 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 really interesting. Like the more yeah, the more of these quotes you're kind of throwing at me, the more I keep thinking of it. Yeah, no, the centrality of the watchtower, I mean, it's it, it has such a deep 
you know, cultural sort of importance. I think that the Latin saying is like, who's watching the watchmen? Like the, the centrality of the watchtower as an institution, as a sort of a symbol of power has always been like really important. I mean, Lord of the Rings, right? Like you have yeah. the Sauron Tower, obviously. Yeah. The all-seeing eye. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's another great one. Fun fact. Do you know which building inspired J.R. Tolkien to create the Eye of Sauron? No. The clock tower in the University of Birmingham, where I did my bachelor's. Really? Yeah, J.R. Tolkien apparently uh, saw the watchtower, uh, the clock tower in, in Birmingham Uni, which is apparently the, the, the highest clock tower, I would say, in Europe, maybe in the world. Oh. Um, it's like 100 meters tall. And apparently that's what inspired him to to create the, the Tower of Sauron. Is it foreboding? Like, does it look... Well, actually, now that I come to think about it, the entire campus is, is like a circle and the the, the the clock tower is actually in the center. Oh, maybe they were maybe they were reading a bit of Bentham back in the day. Yeah. They? This, this story and this episode that I'm bringing actually has a pretty personal sort of um, connection to me. First of all, Foucault is kind of like my ultimate hero and he features really heavily in my in my PhD. He's your Stephen what what Stephen King is to me. Yeah. Okay. He he's my he's my Stephen. <laughs> um but uh yeah and also like I did I did my PhD at the University of College London where Jeremy Bentham's skeleton is currently actually. When Jeremy died, I think it was in 1832, he he wrote a will um that one of his friends sort of dissect his body. And he asked for his uh, skeleton to be preserved, and they sort of made it like a little wax sculpture with with the with his skeleton still inside. So he has like a wax face, and he's still wearing his old clothes. That's weird. Yeah, yeah, it really, really is. And so, so Jeremy Jeremy is preserved in the cabinet in 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 the University College London today, and it's still there, and you can go and check him out. And he specifically asked that he be sort of on display in public in his will. Yeah. Oh, so maybe he was pretty concerned about his legacy then, I guess. Yeah, well, are you ready to have your mind completely blown? Oh, go on. Basically, a couple of years back, in 2016, as students at UCL, we figured out, or we were rather told, that there was actually a hidden camera in, in the cabinet with, with Jeremy. And that camera was actually live-streaming what Jeremy would be seeing. So it was just basically surveilling all the students that were like oh. coming to check him out. And what? that was live streamed on YouTube. Really? Yeah. That's weird, isn't it? That's creepy. Yeah. Guess so, guess what it was called? Uh, some kind of play on Panopticon or something? Or? Yeah. Panopticam. Nice. Yeah. So Bentham was kind of literally turned into a Panopticon. Yeah. Wow. So... How did so this was part of a project, presumably the the university? One of the departments at the university wanted to basically um, use it to study pattern recognition algorithms when it came to surveillance. So they were they were trying to create codes that would quickly recognize different faces um, in you know in 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 video footage. Wow. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's yeah, that's pretty that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I don't think it's live anymore. I think I think they I think they, they canned it. So I think it's okay. just a I think it's just plain old Jeremy now. I feel like Jeremy, not that I know him at all, but you know, obviously we've been chatting about him for a bit. I feel like based on what he said about displaying his, himself in public. I feel like he would have approved of that. Yeah. Concept. I feel like he'd have liked that. Yeah, yeah. No, 100%. Yeah, that is... Yeah, that's strange, though. That's... that's. Oh. Okay, anyway. I'm, 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 I'm going to go and check it out. Yeah, you point. should. I Yeah, you, you've, you've piqued my interest. When we talk about the Panopticon and the idea of the sort of the, the all-seeing prison, and when you apply it to today's society, the, the, the most sort of obvious comparison is the domination of CCTV cameras. That's Remember when I told you that they couldn't really build a Panopticon until basically now because they just lack the technological advancements to yeah. hear and see all the prisoners so that they can keep them under, like, in line? Well, you know, the metaphor of the Panopticon in terms of the CCTV society is, is, is quite obvious. And London is a good example because London is the second most widely watched city in the world after Beijing. Yeah, I, I remember reading something about CCTV in the UK is really high, isn't it? Like Crazy. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's part of like a really long-standing government um, strategy to, to curb crime and to, you know, increase order. And, and it's, it's been, you know, it's been the long-starting standing argument that, you know, surveillance actually um, decreases crime. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's very hard to prove exactly how effective it is, but... I imagine for some people it would certainly be a deterrent, but right. Yeah. But I mean, think about it. You know, you if you walk into like a like a shop or something, you know, there's cameras. Like that that will that will be your first deterrent to yes. be, be, before you do something, you know, potentially illegal. The sheer presence of cameras everywhere, and and your sort of um, passing or almost subconscious knowledge that that you are potentially being watched does does affect your behavior. There's no such thing as being invisible in today's world. I think the most convincing way that Jeremy's Panopticon predicted the present is, is when you look at the internet, particularly the post-Snowden internet, when we figured out millions and millions of people's personal conversation and data and whereabouts were constantly being surveilled and monitored and stuff like that. 
This episode has obviously been leading up to the fact how how the Panopticon predicted sort of the surveillance that we all face on the internet. And as a journalist, but also as, a, as an individual who uses social media, I'm constantly aware that anything that I do, whether in private messages or publicly, uh, may find its way back to me. It's becoming a sort of battle between someone's present and offline self versus someone's past and online self. For example, you have cases like Kevin Hart and James Gunn and other celebrities who faced immense criticism for old and, may I say, pretty nasty tweets that were deleted and subsequently resurfaced. And you have also cases like New York Times' Sarah Jong, who um, also faced some backlash for you know, supposedly racist tweets, which she just said were sort of anti-trolling attempts. Yeah, and this is really, I guess, uh, well, it's been kind of an on, ongoing thing, this this theme of people digging up old tweets and using using it against people. Yeah, and it's it's not just, you know, digging up old tweets, but, um, you know, there's there's the whole problem with revenge porn, you know, intimate photos that, you know, you, you share with, with people that you, you think are close to you and, you and you think you're in a safe space and... Oftentimes, both for for men and women, um, they're used in in various ways to cause you harm. And, you know, you have the so-called doxing attempts, uh, usually linked to far-right trolls, but but not exclusively. And you just see the Internet, which was thought to be the sort of uh, space of freedom and equality, is now basically a giant panopticon where you think that you are you're on your own and you're not being looked at but actually you know everybody's always watching always judging always like on the prowl you know whenever something happens on the street you know whether it's something as mundane as a protest to something you know actually worth seeing everything is being constantly filmed we're, we're living in a completely you know digitalized smartified society where everything around us has the capacities like the hardware the, the microphones and the and the cameras to actually surveil us. It's like that um, that classic photo of uh, that came out when it was a photo of Mark Zuckerberg, and you could see his, um, I think, computer or laptop or something in it, and he'd uh, the remote webcam on top of his computer, he'd like covered up or he had a cover on it. Do you remember that? Yeah. And um, classic Mark. <laughs> it was just this. Um, yeah, it was this idea that obviously he's concerned about a webcam being on his computer in case it gets hacked and stuff. So, it, it, and again, it's like this idea of you never know if you're being watched. So he's just decided to cover that up just in case. And I guess like what you're saying is, yeah, the, probably eventually or maybe even now, we've got so many devices in our house that could potentially listen to us or have the technological capability yeah. to, to do that, that it's almost like, yeah, r- private spaces really are being almost completely eradicated to the point where even in your own home you might not yeah you're seen and heard but more than that we are slowly finding out just how unsafe so much of our private data is today let's take the latest facebook scandal which is really the cherry on top of the cake in late march a security researcher broke the news that facebook had failed to properly protect the passwords of up to 600 million people Those passwords were stored in plain text, accessible by more than 20,000 Facebook employees. Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? There's that, like, um, I think there's that website. uh, Is it Have I Been Pawned? um, Yes. Is that the one? Yeah, okay. And it basically, you can pop in an email address and it can sort of, it surfaces all the various big kind of data breaches of various social media networks, big companies, you know, like LinkedIn, Yahoo, all these ones that have had uh, these these data breaches in the past. And it basically will say whether, you know, your details were 
in, involved in one of those breaches. And yeah, it's scary, not just, you know, like even one of them is scary in itself when it's such a ubiquitous platform that everyone uses, but the sheer number, the sheer kind of volume of these that seem to happen fairly regularly is, yeah, it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, I mean, just when I was researching for this uh, for the segment in the episode, I mean, there's just so many breaches that it was, it was almost impossible to follow through them. But if there's one thing that it shows, it's just letting us know and, and, and allow, it allows us to acknowledge the fact that there there really is truly nothing that we do online or offline that is off limits yeah it's it's, it's a scary thing and it's, it's definitely yeah it definitely ties into this idea of this kind of all-seeing all-seeing eye in a way um yeah and and what's really bizarre and and this will lead me to my final point in a little bit but what's really bizarre is that a lot of these specifically uh, with regards to these big tech um, and surveillance stories, a lot of these stories we only know about because uh, someone blew the whistle. So obviously you have, you know, the really famous story of Snowden blowing the whistle on the NSA spying on millions of people. Then more recently you have the Cambridge Analytical scandal also re- re- revealed through really great reporting and, and the whistleblower where you have this, this you know, this small-ish company seemingly which was actually harvesting the personal data of millions of people using Facebook profiles without these people's consent. And they used it for for what later was found out to be political purposes. And we would never have known about these things if, you know, people didn't blow the whistle and did their due diligence with with great investigative reporting. Which, Sam, uh, leads me to my final point um, connecting the Panopticon thread. And it has to do with a slightly worrying question that I don't think anybody really has the answer to. If we know there are those that watch and those that are being watched, is there anyone then tasked with watching the watch people? How long can we keep this up? Congress is pushing through some new bill that's going to outlaw masks. I brought along a, a clip from a movie. Oh, go on. So it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a movie of the graphic novel uh, Watchmen. Our days are numbered. Until then, it's like you always say, we're society's only protection. From what? Are you kidding me? It's a dystopian take on all superheroes. And what you see in the background of this scene is an American flag, and there's a graffiti over it that says, Who's watching the Watchmen? Yeah, who's watching the Watchmen is a yeah, is a really is a really kind of thought-provoking uh quote, I suppose. Because yeah, it's true. Like, obviously, uh having a kind of um a, f- a force for well obviously in Bentham was hoping a force for good or a force for kind of efficiency is fine but like but then how do you kind of how do you know that that force is you know moral in itself or how do you know that they're doing things for the right reason what happened to the American dream what happened to the American dream it came true you're looking at it I'm getting closer to the end of this episode but I just wanted to bring you one last little Nugget. Go on. So you know that I'm Bulgarian. I do. And the Panopticon plays a pretty big role um, in in my country as well as other post-socialist societies. So we've been talking about, you know, how it works in the digital sphere, right? How surveillance works through technology and how the technological revolution was, you know, the final sort of ingredient to the Panopticon sugar spice and everything nice type thing. Right. But in Eastern Europe, with the rise of Stalin, you actually had those watchtowers built 
in countries across the Eastern Bloc, like Bulgaria and Poland and, you know, Hungary and stuff, you have these large towers. And in, in Poland, you have the, the Palace of Culture, which is like this huge, huge building right in, like right in the middle of Warsaw um, that was, that was uh, built as a gift from the Soviet Union. Um, you have a massive monument in Sofia that celebrates uh, the Red Army's help in defeating the Nazis. You know, you have all these sort of leftover marks that were meant to be the tallest, the most visible, the most dominating piece of um, built form in the city. So that even now that the communist regimes have fallen, you know, you have, you know, they still remain the most dominant legacies in terms of architecture. Yeah, that's, that is really interesting. Um, I guess it's the idea that even, even if it's not necessarily a watchtower, it's still a kind of reminder of, of, of a power kind of structure, isn't it? Like it's, yeah, like even if you don't think it's watching you, you're still aware of its presence and you're you're aware of what's behind that presence. Yeah, and it's it's changing, it's sort of changing how history is perceived, right? It almost seems like these countries were, you know, the most important part of their history was just, you know, something that lasted 30, 40 years and yet is the most visible and, and dominating part of their cityscape. That's all I got for you. Um, it was hopefully not too dense no it was like i mean you worried me with the early talk of philosophy but like i think it was actually no it was it was not yeah it wasn't too dense at all it was really interesting it's it's interesting um having like something that i guess i've always been aware of as a kind of trope of fiction like this idea of a kind of tower or a kind of uh, all-seeing eye like, it's interesting kind of tracking that back to its roots so like the i didn't i'd never heard the phrase panopticon before and um it's interesting seeing all of these examples in real life and in fiction that have have kind of been, come throughout the the years um and yeah lay me your stephen king <laughs> how did you know i was going in that direction you could see the, yeah you could see the glint in my eye yeah. didn't you? no um, i was i was gonna say give it to me no uh, yeah i mean obviously like yeah stephen king does has kind of done some dystopian stuff but also his central kind of uh series of novels the dark tower like it's that it immediately made me think of those like this idea of a i mean it's not a tower that's necessarily constantly visible but it is a it's something that's constantly present to uh, and the, the characters in the the series are always aware of and it's kind of their central goal and basically the tower in in the dark tower series is like the nexus of time and space so it's it's literally an object holding all time and space together and it's the center of the main uh, group of characters quest like it's, the, it's their ultimate goal to get there but it's also there's also forces that are kind of associated with the tower that keep cropping up and kind of interfering with them so yeah it's it kind of reminded me of that of that series of novels which again definitely worth worth a read i wonder how many of these people um from, from the sci-fi stories that we're bringing up i wonder how many of them actually know of jeremy bentham and of the panopticon or whether it's something that they just you know they just have have had their pulse on society like so well that you just so, sort of sensed it yeah well i think it's it's an interesting question i think it's so woven into as you were saying society now this idea of being watched that I guess some maybe some people have kind of picked it up through that, but perhaps I mean certainly I'd never heard of of, of him before that you told me about about him. So you're going I mean, to go I, see him in UCL. I'm going to go see him in UCL. I think I am. Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm interested now. Yeah, 
right. You know, if I was to assess how how good a, f- a fiction prediction this is, I say it's pretty pretty impressive and kind of all kind of encompassing because you found something that is like yeah it appears so much in uh society and so much in fiction that there's like just loads and loads of examples rather than just one mm. i guess the only thing is does it qu- does it qualify as fiction do you think ah that's the question isn't it I, it's, it's, I guess in some ways i was thinking about this quite a lot and i guess it's he, he meant it as a non-fiction concept but it, it was never really realized in his time so it was kind of just a an idea almost so i feel like you could you can almost get away with it i think i see where you're coming from i i think it's not as as clear-cut as you know the first episode that we did about stephen king and donald trump but great i think (laughs) sure yeah uh (laughs) of course it's our debut episode but i you know what i think i i the, the importance is not necessarily the physicality of bentham's uh, panopticon itself i think it's each iteration that it has in in every dystopian um novel or film or you know philosophical interpretation just adds another layer of fiction to it i guess i know it's like good when it it, it immediately makes me think of loads of examples that i hadn't really kind of grouped together consciously before or like uh, yeah a potential source for loads of different things things i've seen throughout fiction so no it's um i think it's yeah i think it's really good the perfect fiction prediction sorry stephen king Ooh, the perfect fiction prediction we're only on episode two i mean i i i, I don't even know have you, have you busted out your like your your biggest guns too early like is this the yeah i i'm gonna i'm i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that the panopticon is gonna be my greatest contribution <laughs> So that's the end of this episode, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We've got a very special guest for our next one. It's uh, Stephen Merchant. Stephen is the co-creator of the era-defining sitcom The Office, and he recently wrote and directed the film Fighting With My Family. We had Stephen come on the pod to talk about what it's like to create things that end up having such a transformative impact on the contemporary culture, and also to see if he had any fiction predictions up his long sleeves. I, I'm going to do a massive name drop right now. Uh, I don't know, maybe you want to throw in some kind of jingle? Name drop. Because um, <laughs> this, is pretty, this is pretty heavy-handed name drop, but I was talking to Tom cruise once <clears throat> and if you don't mind guys give us a comment or a rating on apple podcasts or whichever streaming platform you're using to listen to us yes and uh also really importantly we want to make fiction predictions a, a collaborative effort uh, so we're relying on you guys to guide us towards pieces of fiction that you think uh, deserve to be on this podcast so please send us your suggestions yeah that's right um you can tweet your fiction predictions directly at us it's uh, sam Hasem and nikolai underscore nikolov We look forward to hearing from you. Bye, guys. Bye. Fiction Predictions is a Mashable podcast created by Nikolai Nikolov and Sam Hasem. The theme song was composed by Kasperg. The artwork was designed by Bob Algreen. And this episode was edited by me. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.